Welcome to the Florida Specifier Podcast. Thanks for joining us today. I'm Brett Cyphers, and I'm happy to be sitting here with my co-host, Ryan Matthews. Ryan, how are you today, sir? I am living the dream, Brett. Week six of legislative session. We've crested the halfway point. I'm excited to be here with you, but excited to talk a little bit about what has happened to date during the 2023 legislative session and what remains. Yeah, before we do that, and I guess maybe trying to treat this as a bit of a educational aid for folks out there that may not know, doing some of the conversation today, I mean, right off the bat, week six of nine, right? We do nine weeks of, of session. Uh, at this point during session, people are starting to see policy issues die, bills that have not moved they don't realize it yet. And I think a lot of folks out there, even clients of mine, mm-hmm. will see some bill and say, gosh, I'm really worried about this this bill. And you've got to tell them, you don't need to be worried about that at all because those subcommittees are not going to even meet again unless some miracle will happen. And if that miracle is going to happen, meaning a presiding officer wanted to hear it, it would have already moved by now, right? Yeah, everybody's favorite declaratory statement, bills are dying as we, again, crest that halfway point of session. The way it generally works is you've got any number of both policy and appropriation committees in both the House and Senate, right? And so you've got what are likely sub-appropriation committees that uh, oversee a silo-specific transportation, economic development, environment, et cetera, et cetera. And then you've got bigger committees that are, are oversight committees of those subcommittees. So your subcommittees generally meet until week four, week five of session. And really, as you turn that corner to week six, you see that on both the approach and policy side, a lot of those subcommittees just stop meeting. So if you've got a bill that is languishing in a sub-policy or sub-appropriation committee, and you're in week six, it's pretty unlikely you're going to move forward. Now, listen, there, there are always politics at play where committee references are withdrawn and bills that seemingly were dead are suddenly revived. But historically, there's only a handful of committees that meet week six, seven, and even eight uh, of legislative session. Do they still do it the old way? I remember, this is 20, well over 20 years ago, uh, working as an aide in the Senate, where there were physical forms that you took around to chairs of committees to get them to sign off on withdrawing it from their committee. Because you would get six or seven committees of reference. If you got seven, somebody was telling you something. But if you had four or five and you made it through two, maybe somebody gave you you a break toward week seven, eight, nine. Does that still happen? So in terms of the physical paper form, no. And I'll say different from 20 years ago, whereas now I think the norm is probably having three committees of reference. And if you got two, you're usually in really good shape. If you've got four, it's somewhat rare these days. If you got four, it's somebody sending you a message. I can't imagine seven. That would be backbreaking in terms of trying to get through seven committees. But so, you know, these days it's a little bit different again in that no physical form. And usually if you've got a member with some influence, they can go to the speaker's office or the Senate president's office and say, for these reasons, I'd like a committee reference withdrawn. And, you know, sometimes you're successful. I think isn't one of the strategies and, and it's one that, that I've employed in the past. I'm positive that, that you have and probably maybe even are uh, in this session, which is your bill makes it through one committee of reference, say in the House, and you know, and it's moving just fine in, in the Senate. You're at this point. Now you're looking for essentially a way to put language from the bill that you like onto something that's moving a little bit faster on on both sides. 
What's the success rate for you in in that strategy? That's a good question. I would say that it is pretty issue specific, quite frankly, because all the variables have to line up, right? You've got to have a willing amendment sponsor. You've got to have a somewhat open bill sponsor who says, you know, this wasn't originally part of my legislation and now you're asking me to add to my workload, if you will. So a lot of it can be relationship dependent. A lot of it can be subject matter dependent. I mean, it's pretty well understood that you're not likely to succeed if you're placing a poison pill onto someone's legislative package because you don't you don't like their bill. But if things are copacetic, I mean, you know, the good ones can get over half the time be successful. Yeah, I guess I, I asked the question to maybe t- to reference one that typically is less than copacetic. It's one that relates to, to us directly in, in two different areas. One is department bills. So you have DEP almost always has a environmental resources bill sure. that has a whole bunch of stuff in it and often do not want any company of other ideas that make its way onto it because they like those to run clean. Same would be with transportation bills, right? Yeah. I I mean, I I don't think that we're speaking out of turn by saying that agencies can be stingy when it comes to what they will or will not allow onto their legislative package. And there's there's many reasons for that. I mean, you in your time during the session, during the legislative period of your career, we've all seen that quote unquote train that gets too long and it gets too heavy. And once people identify that a a train is open for business, meaning, yeah, you've got a, a bill sponsor who's certainly willing to entertain almost any kind of language you want to offer, people flock to that. And hence it gets gets a little too heavy. Ideas that were either not discussed in committees, which the House has implemented some rules around uh, as of late, or just, you know, your most egregious sort of home run Hail Mary play. If that gets on a bill, then then yeah, it's unlikely to ultimately pass. There's also, I guess, the factor of, I'll call it the, the dark arts, which is taking language to put it on a bill that you don't like that's moving, that other people will find so distasteful as to as to kill the bill. I think it's like loving it to death is one of the, the, the phrases people use to describe it. Have you engaged in such arts before, sir? I can neither confirm nor deny. But yes, no, there certainly are ways to stall a bill. And look, at the end of the day, quite frankly, it's, it's easier to kill a bill than it is to pass a bill. You know, we've got 1,800, 1,900, 2,000 pieces of legislation each session about 10 to 12 percent of those actually pass so it's certainly easier to kill a bill than it is to pass a bill yeah and so on that note let's talk about some things that aren't languishing or dying or being loved to death at least at the moment and the first one is i think the big one because it's been around since i want to say 2020 i was looking at the old lobby tools uh, a while ago just to lock down when that actually took place and i think it was a uh, senate bill 712 right correct uh, it was only one part. It's one of those DEP omnibus bills where they dealt with a whole bunch of issues, but one of them was the updating and standardizing of statewide uh, stormwater rule. And that is, at this point, it is teed up and ready to, to close out, right? Anything that you see in that that gives you any concern in terms of the likelihood of its success? So I think we had some significant change last week that bolsters the 
the odds of success for ratification. And you're right. So Senate Bill 712, I think it was 2020, in fact. Senator Mayfield passed a, a, a substantive department bill that had numerous rulemakings involved. And anytime you have a agency rule, which ultimately would result in greater than a $1 million cost, because with every, every rulemaking, an agency has to submit a statement of estimated regulatory cost, if that CERC is over a million dollars, the legislature has to ratify the rule. The stormwater rule came in in its CERC at $1.2 billion to implement. Just over that line, yeah. Just over that $1 million line. And I think that equated to like $2,600 more expensive per acre, you know, to appropriately implement your, your new stormwater rules. What we saw this last week, and we've debated on this podcast and other mediums, you know, would the original stormwater rule be ratified as as was written, or would the, would it be amended? Well, it was amended, and those amendments allowed for some grandfather provisions that I think probably the most directly offended parties were able to persuade some changes to allow them to keep doing what they were doing previously and probably largely avoid a bulk of that $1.2 billion cost. And it's not necessarily for invented projects in the future, but it's ones that, and we're talking about folks that build big, giant, you know, wide sweeping projects where they're in say phase two of nine. And and so they want to get, you know, three through nine, you know, in under the wire before these new requirements happen, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, this is this is largely to help. I mean, you know, large developments. Let's not be um, shy about that, but also local governments who who obviously adopt and and deploy and follow a, a large portion of the stormwater rules. I'm glad you mentioned that because it's not one that I'd spent a lot of time thinking about. But when you really stop to to pause, you look at local governments and their capital improvement plans, and they've already mapped out. A lot of the the structural work that they're going to do, they've done land acquisition while maybe it was still relatively inexpensive. And so I have to go back and, and redo that all would be, you know, a nightmare. It would. And I mean, the cost would be sky high. And, and look, I, I know we focus on environmental issues, but also this legislative session, we've seen a number of proposals put forward that would either eliminate or significantly reduce local government revenue. So when you take that in totality, when you're talking about additional homestead exemptions, potential elimination of local business taxes, you know, property tax reform seems to be on the horizon. These are all local government revenues that they utilize to provide for basic services. So if their increased costs and revenues are being taken away, that's going to create uh, an issue for local governments. And I think regardless at this point, I mean, I think we all knew that something was going to to pass. I think all of our predictions were in, in that direction. It's not like a difficult prediction to make. I was a little bit surprised that, you know, a few of the, that they would allow, you know, the amendments to it that, that they did. But but here we are. And I think that one looks, I think we'll, we'll be back talking about this again after its passage and signature by the governor for sure. I think you're right about that. Let's go to House Bill 1073. That's Enhancement and Mitigation Credits by Representative Trunow. There are two parts of that bill, and I think they're both really important. They both do uh, some things that address a need that hasn't been addressed up to this point. Talk a little bit about the mitigation side of that in terms of what that need was that they were going after. Sure. So we'll go back to 2019. Rep McClure filed and passed a piece of legislation that said that you could participate in permittee-responsible mitigation 
on local government lands. So basically what that meant is that you could go to a local government, and if you had 100 acres to mitigate, you could have 10 people take 10 acres each and provide mitigation and a net benefit of environmental resources to offset development on what was previously not allowed. And so what this bill would do is to say that in addition, we are going to say further, you can have, and through a publicly procured process, contract with a private mitigation banker to run a mitigation bank on local government lands that were purchased for conservation purposes. The genesis of this is that you know mitigation credits are extremely low throughout the entirety of the state. So if there are no other mitigation credits available, this is an alternative relief valve that you can, again, the local government would receive a revenue stream, they'd contract with a mitigation banker, and on those lands, local government lands that were purchased for conservation purposes, you could now run a bank and, and offer more credits when, when others are not available in the region. I want to talk about how it's moving at this point through the process, but first just to cover the other side of it, which deals in water quality enhancement areas essentially, or really water quality credit trading in reality, what we used to call it in the old days. And it expands the ability to to essentially, given the construct of the new stormwater rule and more stringent requirements that are there, it allows not just local governments, which was written into law in 2021, I believe, to allow local governments to do that, to now allow the private sector to engage in the development and sale of these credits to meet water quality requirements. The, The question for me is, are you surprised? One, it's moving pretty quickly. It's doing well on both sides, the Senate and the House. But beyond that, it's had every vote that it's had has been unanimously in favor. Are you surprised about that? Well, no, because the lobbyists are excellent who are <laughs> lobbying on behalf of those bills. I think it probably highlights, and I certainly say that in jest, it highlights how much effort is necessary to educate not only potential opponents of any piece of legislation, but every individual senator or representative prior to them hearing a bill in committee. You never want a representative or senator to learn of an issue for the first time in in public and committee. You'd love to be able to sit with them and vet what they may have as a an initial reaction to the proposal because it's it's bad for a sponsor who has agreed to, you know, work with you in any capacity to know sort of what they're walking into. For sure. All right, before I let you go and you're the busiest man in town these days, I want to talk a little bit about the budget. And I don't want to talk about the numbers specifically. Everyone has, you know, their hobby horse that they're riding and the amount that they're going after. And if you're the Everglades right now, you're in pretty good shape. As uh, usual. Right. But talk a little bit about the process. Because as you said, we we're in the beginning of week six. In the next week or two, we'll be looking at conference. But talk about for folks that may not understand, here's the step that we just finished, which was the passing of individual budgets to how you get to conference and what and what's going on in the back and forth in the middle there. Sure. So we've got what has been in years past sort of I think the the best description I heard was austere budget, you know, sort of that pre pandemic level funding budget is the goal of the governor and certainly the speaker. And it's 
seemingly the Senate president as well. The chambers have both passed their individual budgets. We talked about sort of sub-appropriation committees earlier on in the episode. So each sub-appropriation chairman or chairwoman will get an allocation. It's the amount of money that their budget is able to, to receive. And they've already gotten one allocation, Generally, after the budget has been passed and, and negotiation has taken place between the House and the Senate, they'll get a second allocation. Usually, it's a little bit more money than they had in that first pass. So these next two weeks, while we get to budget conference, even before, the issues are sort of hashed out in a hierarchy. So you've got individual sub-appropriation committee members talking to their counterpart in the other chamber. You've got the large appropriations, both chairmen this year, speaking with each other. Once allocations are considered, a conference committee is is named, and then those folks have a budget conference. Generally, that takes place over the course of a, a week at most. I mean, four to five days. There's a lot of publicly held meetings where offers are presented and agreed to within seconds and or minutes that would leave one to believe that some of this negotiation (laughs) takes place uh, outside of those sometimes minute and a half meetings. So a lot of back channel conversations occur and there is no sunshine for state legislators. So it's not as if they have to publicly notice an agenda every conversation they're having with another elected official. So a bulk of the work is done behind the scenes, certainly. Going back to the beginning of the process when you see them starting to put together that that initial budget and then doing the budget amendments, for those of us out there that were scrambling to get a little bit of something in the budget, that way you're still a part of the conversation in that process you talked about. But there are a lot of folks out there that have yes, dozens, 9, 10, 11 plus counties. That's a lot of local government needs, a lot of projects to, to find their way into the budget. A lot of those just didn't, right? What, I mean, essentially they're out of luck, right? I mean, if you do not make it, talk about the even being a part of the conversation, what you have to do to, to reach the minimum threshold to be in. So you, you need to have a, a motivated sponsor. We work with a host of House and Senate members on appropriations projects throughout the legislative session. And really, honestly, the secret to the appropriations process is bugging people. I mean, you really have to have both from your sort of initial budget form that you're submitting in, in terms of descripting the the project that you have, the need, the reason. There's always two things to focus on, quite frankly, is, you know, shovel readiness of a project. And then are you going to have at least a 50% match? We've seen the DeSantis administration, much like the Scott administration, you're really DOA unless you've got at least 50% to bring to the table and you're shovel ready within the fiscal year. So once you get your appropriation project form filled in, I always love to have conversations with legislators on the front end to see what, what do they think is necessary in their communities because the local elected officials might have a different view and you're obviously going to be more successful if your state legislator and your local elected officials feel the same way about what's necessary so once that happens you get your project submitted then you're you're kind of moving yourself through a sub-appropriation committee or or two uh, depending on the process You, you want to be in that initial budget in either the house or the senate so you brought up the point of, of budget amendments. If you find yourself in the in an enviable position uh, of not being in an initial budget, the Senate this year, they, they, they go through a process of budget amendments. You had to get at least $350,000 to be eligible to have a budget amendment that a member could then place onto the budget, either in committee or on the floor. 
in week six, the, the best position you can be in is if you're in both the House and Senate budget. Very few projects are in both the House and Senate budget. We are, I am lucky to have a couple, but if you're in the Senate budget at $350,000 and you're in, you're in the House budget at, you know, $350,000, you can effectively say that your your project is closed out. As long as there's no disagreement on that specific project, which would be rare, you're good to go. Now, if you've got $500,000 in the in the House and 350 in the Senate, you want to be going to your senator and say, "Please take the House position at $500,000." And you're going to the House member and say, "Stick to it. You know, we want we want that 500." If you Try to get a little bit more. There's a possibility there, but what's the old saying about uh, pigs get fat and hogs get slaughtered? So, <laughs> exactly, exactly. What do you think the before we we close out? What do you think the outlook is for post passing of the budget? Uh, you know, on, on both sides because they've got to pass one that's identical. They get to the end, they agree to an amount of money that's almost like as you said, almost assuredly larger than the amount they're dealing with at the moment. And then it goes to the governor. There's a lot of questions there. You know, it's it's tough to say in week six how it all will turn out. But I will say confidently that, yes, in the beginning of week nine, we will have an agreed upon budget between the House and Senate, likely somewhere in that $115 billion area. The budget, once it's agreed upon, has to sit on the member's desk for 72 hours and because of technology, it doesn't doesn't physically sit on their desk. It is emailed to them before any action can be taken, and then they will debate and ask questions on, on that budget in their individual chambers. The governor has line item veto authority in, in this state, and some years he has you know fully utilized that authority. In other other years, he's been more tempered in his veto. I, I don't know honestly what it will look like this year. I mean, obviously there's a ton of variables that go into that, but I do think that you can generally look at a governor's recommended budget. The legislature will then put something forward where they either agree or disagree to what extent it differs, but he's got the ultimate you know, ability to just say, well, this is what I wanted and I told you before session started. So there will be vetoes. I know that. <laughs> to what extent? I don't know. It hasn't really been, at least not to my recollection, been used before. It's like, but the the super secret ultimate is you do have the ability to you know, overturn a veto, and in fact, I think both sides of the legislature at least have the votes if they vote as a Republican caucus to do do such a thing. Is there any likelihood at all that that might, might that might happen for something that say a big priority of President Pasadomo? You know, it's tough. Again, I, I would say that you're right in that a veto override could be accomplished. I don't I don't see it happening this year. I could be wrong, but I, I think it's unlikely that you would have a veto overridden by the legislature after this budget. All right. You heard it from Ryan. <laughs> Take it to the bank. Yeah. And that's all the time we have for this episode. Thanks for listening to the Florida Specifier podcast. Don't forget to subscribe on whatever platform you use to listen and give us a good rating if the spirit moves you. And check out the Florida Specifier website at floridaspecifier.com for more episodes, news, and other content that make it easy to read, watch, listen, and learn all at your fingertips. Production of this podcast is by Carl Soren and David Barfield at Lonely Fox Studios. As always, a big thank you goes out to Bagels and Biscuits, who were kind enough to let us use their music for the show. Check them out wherever you get your music. 
Join us next time as we continue to cover the issues, policy, and people that environmental professionals and policymakers want to know about. And that's it. For Brett Cyphers, I'm Ryan Matthews. We'll see you next time.